Agriculture is going to continue and it's going to thrive. Whether it's being run by families is really the question for the future because as a small family farm, it's very difficult to uh, make things work. Farming is going to look way different than it does right now. I, I think that if you want to be a farmer in the future, you should be studying robotics right now. Like I think we're going to have AI and we're going to have automation. Either you need to be a really highly technically minded person or you know you need to think more like an economist and try to be in the position to manage trends and and figure out what you should be doing ahead of the cycles because what should we be growing you know and and there's very few things that you can grow in California right now and make any money at very few i think that uh in agriculture you have to start training kids to be entrepreneurial and consider you know, like most people thinking about multiple streams of income, how do you take your farming operation and view it as just one of many income streams? And I know that, you know, a lot of people in agriculture are diversified in what they do in ag, but I think we have to start looking at diversifying ourselves outside of ag. You need income streams that are not ag-based. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, Farm to Table Talk talks about journeys, and my guest today has had a journey, a journey that started on a farm, left the farm, came back to the farm, and even looking at different enterprises right now. And I'm really happy to welcome Dino Giacomazzi. Dino, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you for having me. Say, Dino, your family has been in farming for well over 100 years, right? That's correct. Uh, it'll be, uh, well, it was 130 years this past January. So, you know, my family is, was in uh, about that long, too. My family came from Northern Ireland. Did yours come straight from some other country to here, or were they somewhere else in America and then come to California? Yeah, my, my great-grandfather uh, on my dad's side, when uh, the Giacomazzi family, he came from uh, the... Italian region of Switzerland in the um, in the in the 1880s and and had spent a little bit of time uh, in San Francisco and then down in the Salinas Valley and then eventually made his way over to Hanford where um, he he purchased the property that I'm sitting on right now uh, in 1893 from the Southern Pacific Railroad Company who at that time had claimed this land and built a railroad through it and then sold parcels off to um, finance the construction of the railroad. So my, my family um, in on the property that I'm sitting on currently, uh, we've, we've owned it. We've been the original, we're the original private owners of the property essentially. So the fact that he ended up coming down there and, farming but was some of that heritage in in italy were they farmers in italy before they came to san francisco or you know i mean they were mountain people 
you know, they're, they're, um, I actually was, I was actually there where in the village where my great grandfather came from this past summer. And, you know, they were essentially, uh, you know, dairy people and they, they have a, a pretty interesting, um, setup there cause they live in this Valley, uh, but it's a very narrow Valley it's called the Valley Maja. And it's, they don't really farm down in the valley, but like up on the tops of some of the mountains, there's open um, plains, I guess, or be, you know, I don't know what, what exactly how you would term it, but they, but they graze um, animals and they, and they um, grow hay up on top of these mountains that they, that they have to hike two hours up, uh, up the hill to, yeah. uh, to get to it and, uh, and do their work. And then they drag uh hay bales or hay down the hill on a cart. At least that's what they were doing back then. You know, now they're not, now they kind of do it more for uh, cultural purposes, I think, than uh, economic purposes. But, in, you know, I think dairy was, uh, I mean, obviously the Swiss Alps um, are known for cheese and for dairy for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And uh, that's essentially where it, where it started. Now, is that the area, too, that sometimes they'd actually live above the cattle? Because a lot of your neighbors that are Basque were in areas where they actually, at the at the first level of these buildings, they had their livestock, and the, the families lived above the livestock. Yes, absolutely. All, all of the houses uh, in that part of Switzerland and Italy, you know, in the rural areas, um, my family's houses, the, the houses where my ancestors came from, they are... That there's nobody living in now, but the but the structures are still there. That's exactly how they were set up. The the cows <clears throat> and the pigs were on the bottom floor, and the family lived uh, above it. Yeah, and, well, and they, you know, they, hmm? oh, I was just going to say I can see that with cows because it, I, I actually think the cow manure doesn't smell bad, but pig manure. Yeah, is as you live over pigs, it's probably not ideal. But you know, I imagine that the, back then people tolerated a lot more shit than we do. <laughs> Well, and then I was saying in your part of the Central Valley, there's some some Basque operations down there, too. And they had similar. They're up in the Pyrenees. And it was a similar kind of arrangement and agriculture, similar to what you're describing, I think. And, and a lot of them came over as sheep herders originally and came into this kind of territory. Don't you wish, Dino, that you could imagine what it was like back there in San Francisco? You've been there when your great grandfather came over. And he had um, his life in front of him. And who knew that he was going to have like five generations of people that might be trying to make it on a farm and then, you know, see this opportunity down in the valley uh, in California. It just you think about that, that when you have the opportunity to go to some space like that and start farming and then, you know, what must have been going through their head? Like they they had to get there and say, gee, I can't do it like we did in Italy and almost had to start making it up, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I mean. Well, first of all, you got to imagine how hardy these people were, um, and you know, to have to have left uh, and made the trip to get here, right? I mean, in, in the you know, but my my great grandfather came um, by ship, you know, like everybody did. They they landed in New York, and then he took another ship down to Panama, walked across Panama before there was a canal got on another boat and and took it to San Francisco and you know and if you think about the valley back during that time I mean it's not like there's a 
you know, like there's a John Deere dealership every 10 miles around here. You know, I mean, we have, uh, we, you know, everything we need, we have available to us. And, and, you know, back then there was nobody here. They had to essentially, uh, figure it all out. Right. They had to take what was, what was really lousy. You know, this, this Valley, uh, you know, a hundred years ago was, was really inhospitable, I think from a, uh, agricultural perspective it was very you know salty and and unlevel and and they had to uh you know they had to level this ground by hand um you know with with a horse and a or a mule or ox or however they did it you know with their with their fresno scraper and and uh they had to figure out how to flood irrigate without you know uh, electricity and pumps you know they they were they were, you know, using a lot of, um, you know, where, where where they were connected up to the canals. They had opportunities to to get water and 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 flood it. Um, and all that flooding over, you know, many uh, many many years leached uh, the salts away and and eventually created um, some of the most fertile soil on the planet. And you know, all of that was, um, you know, a backbreaking effort in in an area that's, you know, a hundred and ten degrees for. You know, I, I think about this all the time when I'm in my air-conditioned truck driving around when it's 105 out, complaining about how hot the valley is and how I'd rather be at the coast. And I think, man, my you know my my ancestors they all dealt with this with no no air conditioner, you know, <laughs> nowhere to go, just sit out in this heat. Well, one of the things is progress. There's a lot of farmers that, that have reached a stage. They eventually got to go to the coast for some vacations or have a place or go to the mountains because you, it, it is hot in the valley. And and the, and what, like 12 inches of rain or something? It's uh, not much not much moisture falls unless you're getting it through through canals. Yeah, not much. Well, I mean, in, yeah, in the South Valley, you know, it's closer to 8 or 10, right? So we, we so, don't get a lot of rainfall. So I'm still thinking about turning back the clock then so that you're down there and you got all this and there's so much to, to do. At what point did they look around and say, man, what we need are dairies? I mean, is it the because that was something that they knew when they were in the old country or there really was a need that they could fill with building dairies in Central California? I mean, I think for my great grandfather, that was... Um... You know, I mean, I think it was both of those things. I mean, first he eats what he knew, I imagine. Right? He, I'm, I'm sure that's what he knew how to do, uh, having come from Switzerland. And also at the time, uh, the town of Hanford, where where we live, which is just a couple miles away, was uh, was a new and growing town. And, um, you know, and there were several Swiss who had made their way here and started milking cows and 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 initially, I, I I mean the story is that my great grandfather was producing cheese and butter, and uh, and selling it to the Chinese rail workers who also established um, residency in the town of Hanford. This town was was really established by Swiss Italian farmers and Chinese rail workers, and and not, and not only do we have you know 130 year old um, farms in in hanford but we have 130 year old chinese restaurants in hanford you know six seven generation uh restaurants here so you know there's a there's a lot of um uh deep uh connection to the uh founding of this town still in uh in the little town of hanford 
You know, if you happen to settle in Vermont or New Hampshire or somewhere like that, you have probably um, people can imagine these uh, smaller dairies and and fields that they could go to and graze in. You don't think of it when you think of that part of, of the South Valley in California. I mean, a lot of the dairies have evolved today. They're in more dry lots. Uh, there's some areas yet of California where cows actually go out to out to pasture land and they come back in to be milked and so forth, but not so much down there. So from the from the outset, when dairies were getting established. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the South Valley doesn't have the weather for, you know, year round grass like they do on the north coast for example you know the north coast of above marin uh sonoma county um so what what they did back then and we and we still have the the structure in place is we, we have a we have a chopped hay barn that was built in 1919 and you know and so they would they would grow hay uh grass hay or whatever it was that they grew and they would take advantage of the winter rain and they would uh, chop the hay and uh, and then they would they would stack it up in the barn and the cows sort of you know lived around the barn right around the hay barn mm-hmm. and uh and they would they would pitch the hay into the mangers at the base of the barn on three sides and uh and that's where the cows would eat and then of course eventually they figured out how to import grain um and started feeding grain in the barn and uh and fed uh grass hay or you know alfalfa hay dried chopped hay out out in the corrals you know uh, the dairies in california are are recognized as being some pretty large-scale dairies historically what um is it just a matter of necessity that they've had to get a lot larger because they've you know they're the dairies aren't as big in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and so forth as 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 California dairies. What requires the scale in California that some other areas don't seem to have required? Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to start with by saying that your 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 question comes with a little bit of a fallacy, right? Okay, and that and that is that those areas also now require scale. And, okay. and that, and that, you know, the, the, you know, every new, you know, every new dairy that's been built in the last 20 years has been built out of California. They've been, you know, 3,500 plus cows, uh, you know, they're, they're propping up all over, you know, there was, there's been a, there was a big movement in the upper Midwest in the I-29 corridor and, and, you know, around South Dakota, there's a bunch of, t- Dairies went to the Texas, um, you know, Panhandle area. Uh, now there's t- dairies moving into Kansas, but um, you know, even in in Wisconsin, you know, there there are, you know, the, they've kind of. I know Wisconsin's kind of tried to put some things in place to minimize the construction of of larger dairies, but I I think that the that the reason initially California dairies required scale because we just had. A little bit of a different um you know we had to import a lot of grain into california there was just you know from the from the perspective of our cost structure you know we needed to scale up i I think that same condition now exists pretty much everywhere um Mm -hmm. in the country you know i think i think the dairy industry unfortunately is consolidating pretty rapidly And, and and i would say that the driver of consolidation in 
the Midwest and the, and the Northeast is, is uh, mostly a generational problem where mom and pa are retiring and the, there's no kids around to do it. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't, I don't know, you know, and, and those small dairies were mostly managed by the family, right? You know, the yeah. parents uh, milk the cows, feed the cows, you know, 50, 100 cows, you can do it. Um, <clears throat> I think if you want to go back in time a little bit and understand like why California's dairy scaled the way they did, uh, a lot of it was just because um, of tax uh, tax code, right? If you really, if you have, if you yeah, if you have, uh, you know, if you were milking uh, five hundred cows in in uh, Chino or in you know outside of downtown LA, as an example. And, uh, and you sold your, your dairy for, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars an acre and you had to exchange that into, uh, you know, more land and more property in another dairy. Well, now you're kind of 10 Xing your, uh, your scale because you've got enough money to go from a 500 cow dairy to a 5,000 cow dairy. Right. Right. And, and there was, and there was a, you know, a long trend of that in California, 30 years ago, um, you know, that, that continued, uh, up until even, you know, 20, 25 years ago, but that, that trend has kind of, you know, subsided. Right. But there's still that sort of kind of movement happening in, in other parts of the country. I think where, you know, urban, urban sprawl has, has pushed the dairies further out. And as they get pushed out, you, you know, you have to reinvest your money or you pay capital gains tax. Right. So you might as well, build a larger, more efficient operation. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, you're right. I was a little off target and I'm glad you got me back on back on target with that now. Now let's get back and kind of your journey because we've talked about California, your great grandfather and, and all of those things. But you grew up on the farm and then you went to college as as people often do, but then you didn't come back for a while. Why don't you explain that? What because when you went off to college, did you go off intending to be able to study something that was going to be useful to come back and run a dairy, but change your mind? How did that happen? Well, I went to I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which uh, had a dairy science program. I went I went to school um, to be a dairy. I was a dairy major. I was basically raised working every day. You know, my whole childhood i was essentially told by my family that i was going to go to college and come back and work on the dairy that's the path that um i followed it was not the once i got to school i i i kind of quickly i kind of changed my view of the world a little bit i didn't really want to be uh, a dairy farmer mm -hmm. um i was i was not a fan of the work you know, I really was, I did not like to work hard. I did not like to work out in the heat, you know, and, and up, up until then, you know, I mean, I was essentially a glorified uh, ditch digger, right? I mean, that was the, you know, that was the work that I had been given in my, in my um, young life. So I didn't see a career as a ditch digger looking very attractive to me. And, um, and so I, I started looking at other things that I, I might've been interested in. And, and I actually got a, I got a degree in dairy science from Cal Poly, but I also got a minor 
in um, music recording technology. I, I, I got, uh, I was, I was interested in music um, as a, as a child and I was playing in bands and DJing school parties and things like that. I always had kind of an interest in that. And so I, I, you know, just as something that I liked to do, um, I got this, um, this degree and, and essentially learned to become an audio engineer. And, um, anyway, and so after, after, uh, I, you know, I left Cal Poly and came home, I, I, um, I came into an environment where, you know, I, I, am the fourth generation and the, um, the second and the third generation were still there and they were not, uh, getting along very well, nor had they ever really gotten along. You know, uh, you, you mentioned there was a, uh, common, uh, you mentioned something that the Italians have maybe in common with the Basque. And, and, and one of the things I think the, uh, uh, Italians, the Basque, have is that they don't get along with each other very well, you know, within, within the families, you know, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of angry Swiss Italian people. I came, I come from a line of that. Right. And so like my grandfather and his brothers were in partnership after my great grandfather and they broke up their partnership, uh, in the sixties and never spoke to each other again, lived, lived literally within mile of each other, never spoke and, and never attended any of the other one's funerals. This is, <laughs> this is kind of, you know, famous of that. And then my grandfather and my father were partners and uh, they didn't speak. And, and, and when I came home, you know, I was like fresh meat for them. And, and so both my father and my grandfather felt like, you know, I was somebody new that they got to fight with. And, um, I didn't want to participate in that. So after about a year, um, I, I left the farm and I moved back to the town where I had gone to college and, and uh, without really knowing what I could do with myself, um, you know, having, having that I had a dairy science degree, I wasn't really uh, qualified to do anything in the real world. And, uh, but I did own some, sound system equipment that I had, you know, that I had carried around with me to, to, to work with my band and um, DJ parties and whatnot, DJ a lot of weddings. And so I kind of went, I, I, I sort of made a living uh, doing sound for bands and DJing weddings and events um, on the central coast. And, and so it was kind of a, you know, in my, as a, as a 23 year old, you know, it's about what I, figured I could do well that, that, um, that, that, uh, path for me kind of evolved over about a 10 year period where I went from kind of, you know, participating in the local music scene to, I, I became a concert producer and, and, and went from, you know, putting on club shows to, you know, doing larger shows like in, uh, amphitheaters and, and, you know, at the gym at Cal Poly and, and, and things of that nature, which eventually led to me um, meeting up with some, you know, getting to know bands that were touring. And, and I eventually became a tour manager. And so I spent about um, five years of my life uh, traveling around the world in uh, tour buses uh, with bands, you know, kind of as the, as the road manager. 
and and I did that, uh, and then and then uh, at the ripe old age of, of about thirty one, I felt I was too old for that gig, and um, and moved to San Francisco and started uh, um, programming, and and worked in the internet uh, software industry uh, during the the ninety eight uh, to two thousand two sort of dot com bubble era. Mm-hmm. Which which was a very uh, fun and interesting time uh, to live in San Francisco, and then and then uh, and uh, I remember I remember this like it was uh, this morning because it was um, right after nine eleven. I was in San Francisco when nine eleven happened, mm-hmm. and uh, and and a couple of weeks later, I get a call from my family that my father uh, had uh, cancer. And was going to be undergoing some treatment, and they asked if I could come home and help out on the farm while my dad was dealing with cancer. And I'm, I'm the only son of uh, out of four kids. I have three sisters, and so I agreed to come home for uh, some time. And uh, twenty uh, one years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so, well, that's quite a that's quite a story. That's quite mm-hmm. a story, but it it also explains to people why you have such good audio. They're listening to the podcast right now. You know what you're doing <laughs> when it comes to to audio setups, too. But mm-hmm. so when you when you come back, I mean, I mean, what surprised you when you went back to the farm? What surprised you that you <laughs> liked you didn't think you would, or that you you forgot about, or what was different? And um, and and then explain yourself why you're still there twenty some years later. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I I think you know what was different. Um, to, to answer that question first is, what was different was the relationship with my father at that point. I mean, we were both older. Um, my father was was sick, you know, and and much less um, interested, I guess, in uh, you know uh, following me around uh, and uh, and 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 criticizing my ability to operate a shovel, I suppose. And, and was, you know, kind of, he was kind of hands off, you know, he really let me do um, what I wanted to do. And, and I got, I was, I, I would say that I was, um, I was interested because when I came back to agriculture in, you know, around 2002, things, agriculture, I think at that time started pivoting towards the changes that we're starting to experience now with let's just say consumers sentiment about farming agriculture's relationship to the environment um sort of the economic situations and i think there were uh and, and so it was really interesting to me at that time to be a part of um you know participating in the changes that were going to happen in the industry and you know and i kind of saw it coming because i had spent you know, the previous 13 or 14 years hanging out with a bunch of hippies in San Francisco and in the music business where all of these where, you know, which seemed very fringe ideas back then, um, veganism and organic food and, you know, uh, and, and, and um, let's just say, you know, people's concerns about animal welfare those were not mainstream ideas at all. They were very, very fringe, but they were very mainstream where I was, you know, in the, in the world that I was in, 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I had a, you know, I, I, I used to help a band out in San Luis Obispo in the early nineties that, that op, the band operated a vegan catering business, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that seemed like, you know, to me, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but you know, I'll help you anyway, cause I like your music or whatever. Right. Like this. Um, so, you know, like I, I felt like because I had this direct, uh, connection and relationship to this sort of mentality, right. This kind of, and, and I really noticed it then because it was, it was during the early stages of like the banning of, uh, of BST or the, you know, the, 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 you know, the hormone and milk issue, you know, which was yeah. kind of the first, I'm going to say in my experience of the world, the first negative piece of information that, 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 that came through mainstream thinking was people's concern about hormones and milk, you yeah. know, and then it became about glyphosate and then it became about, you know, hundreds of other things. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, having been you know, I, I felt like I had, I guess, somewhat of a, I don't know, I, I'm going to say that I really kind of felt obligated uh, to some degree to, you know, number one, my family to try to manage through the changes coming, you know, and, and happening in the industry, as well as going around and talking about it and sharing my experience with my neighbors, you know, um, <clears throat> and 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 at the time, uh, you know, there's kind of a, I, I got, I, I had to come when I came back to the farm. You know, I hadn't, I really had never, um, I had never really been a farmer when you think about it, right? I mean, I I didn't know how to farm even when I was a farmer because I was just, you know, I was just told get on that tractor and drive. I was told, you know, go to that, you know, ditch and dig or go to that cow and milk it. You know, I didn't really, I wasn't really trained in farming, I, I had a dairy science degree. So I knew a lot about how a cow worked and how to, you know, uh, how to breed her. Um, but I didn't know how, literally how to farm, you know, like I didn't mm-hmm. take soil science in school. Like I didn't know anything about crops, but when I came back, I found that that was really the biggest part of my job because, you know, when, when you have a, when you have a dairy, that's a thousand cows, um, you know, you've got people that are doing all most of the jobs, and I um, and and there's a there's an interesting thing about a dairy. You know, it's it's, it's really easy, in my opinion. Managing a dairy is fairly simple because the cycle of disaster is 24 hours, right? Like every 24 hours, something goes wrong, yeah. and and it's it's easy to train people how to deal with problems when you see the problem occur uh you know every day right and but with the farm you know the cycle uh you know is a year and 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 now we grow trees and the cycles in the trees are you know tens of years sometimes right so you know it's it's really so the farming requires a little more thinking and a little more you know hands-on a little more experimental but but coming back to it, I had to relearn how to farm. And, and so I, I started looking at like, what was the latest and greatest technology? Like what was, what was, um, you know, what, what was coming in the future that we had to start making changes for now so that we were prepared, you know, for changes in the, 
in regulations, changes in the market, what would it be? And and anyhow, that kind of got me moving in the direction of um, conservation tillage. Um, and, and I and I discovered this conservation tillage idea because my father went down to the NRCS and signed up for a, a grant uh, for 30 bucks an acre to try to find some way to farm uh, and make less dust. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I kind of really dove into that idea and, you know, tried to do no till eventually started strip tilling kind of came up with a plan of like how to make strip tilling work in in the Valley and a, you know, in a much different environment, you know, like, you know, you, you can't really look at like what they do in the Midwest and, and apply that technology to uh, this part of the world because, you know, we have much different conditions with double cropping, our ground doesn't freeze. We have semi trucks driving on our fields, you know, hauling the silage is out and you know there's just a whole different world we're flood irrigating um you know there's just it's just such a different thing so we kind of had to reinvent um strip till for uh you know the san joaquin valley um and and so with with you know a lot of work with the university of california particularly with jeff mitchell um at five points who who runs this group uh, that was dealing with, you know, conservation tillage as well as cover cropping. And, and anyway, so we learned a lot and there, and there was a lot of, so that was, you know, so Gus, this is a, a long way to go back to answer your question is that it was really, it was really fun and interesting for me to be participating in like these new ideas and developing new technologies, right? New techniques in farming. And, um, and, and then, you know, if, if, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just pause there and see if that's, uh, no, no, that's, that's good, but let's, let's move ahead then to today, because there came a point that you decided that you've been a dairy long enough, which was over a hundred years and you, (laughs) and you switched. Now it's, it's not unusual for farmers to be concerned about the high cost of regulations and, you know, high cost of labor and, you know, it almost is a job description. And and I think there's a lot of truth to it. I think that sometimes, you know, the regulations are going too far and costs are going too far. And But it also ties back to that you're not making enough income. I mean, you know, it'd be one thing if people were able to do the different things and pe- pay people well and so forth and make a living. But ultimately, a lot of times the choices are made because you can you can make a better living in one commodity than another. So... And then without putting words in your mouth, I mean, what were those issues where you said, okay, that's, we're no longer going to be dairy. We're going to go into something else. Yeah. Well, we, we sold our cows in, um, in October of 2019. Um, so we're just now four years, uh, four years out of the dairy business after having milk cows, 126 years on the same property. Um, milking in the same barn actually since 1937 or we were we were milking in a flat barn uh with open lot corrals on a hundred and some plus year old facility hmm. and that we were way over you know way over subscribing right I mean, we were milking a thousand cows on a place that was really meant for you know a couple hundred maybe and <clears throat> you know and we made it work but it really wasn't big enough 
um, to be efficient. Uh, it was very inefficient in terms of like its design. And so we had to, you know, at some point I had to make a decision. Are we going to invest in modernizing the dairy, you know, and, and making it a more efficient place like a carousel barn and free stalls and all this and, <clears throat> or are we going to do something different? And, you know, the, when, when I looked at that decision in like 2012, um, you know, the dairy industry, they're really, you know, we were going to, it was going to cost us, I don't know, maybe 10 million bucks to uh, upgrade the facility and, and to grow. Um, and, and, you know, and when you looked at the, the previous 10 years and you, and you look at what the dairy was making and try to plot a trajectory towards paying off that investment, it just didn't make sense. There just wasn't a, a path, you know, to, to um, pay, recouping that cost. And so uh, around 2013, we made the decision to plant almonds as a, as a diversification, right? So we decided that we would plant uh, some surplus land that we owned uh, to almond trees and, you know, the almonds would grow up and, and support the dairy. And so we got into that um, and we planted trees in 2014. And then by the time, you know, 2019 came around, there had just been too many years in a row on the dairy where we weren't making money and, and it became, you know, uh, impossible for us to, you know, continue going, right. It just wasn't, it just wasn't, um, going to work out. And, and I'm going to say that, you know, you know, I'm pretty grateful that we did sell the cows at the time that we did because we sold them in October of 2019. And just before, you know, things started going uh, haywire with COVID in the beginning of 2020. And, and one of the, one of the major reasons why we chose to sell the cows at the time was that we could not find people who wanted to work um, in our, barn you know and and um you know we it was it was hard enough to find people to work period uh, but to ask people to work you know, flat barn you know down inside with the cows it's a kind of dangerous it's it's hard work and uh and we had just constant turnover um you know at the time i had i had uh most of my employees have been with us had been with us for you know between 10 and 40 years but then we had you know this like this milker crew that was like turning over like every week you know i mean it's just constant um i think it would have been even much more difficult for us to find people to work there during the during the lockdowns and all the you know uh concern that people were having during that time uh so you know it was really kind of like the decision to sell was economic and it was also sort of just out of sheer necessity because uh it was so difficult uh to find people to work here yeah i wonder what's going to change that and now it's, it's also one of those things i wonder if uh, say for example the price of milk was double what it is and people could be paid much more would that would that too simplistic um uh, that solve a problem if they're not making you're not getting a high enough price on milk 
to be able to pay people to do those jobs that are are tough. Um, I, I don't, you know, I tend to think that, that people didn't want to do that job no matter the price, right? Like uh, it mm -hmm. seemed like, yeah. you know, we were, we were offering pretty good money compared to, you know, what, uh, let's just say minimum wage was, or what the neighbors might've been paying. You know, we were, we were, you know, we kept cranking it up trying to attract people, but I think, um, you know, I, I think there was just there's been the, the the labor market in California for agriculture has been very tight. And, you know, if you could go work um, out in the field, picking fruit or doing something like that, that's a, you know, less hours, easier job. You don't ever have to work at night. Um, you know, there's just a lot to uh, you know, kind of get the winter off. Uh, that just seems like a more attractive opportunity than. um you know, working in a, in a very difficult physical labor situation. Well, we're going to have to come back and talk more sometime about the, this next stage that you're into almonds and, and these other crops, because there are a lot of challenges but that, uh, that agriculture faces. And, and you have, you have kids that you've mentioned before, you wanted them to possibly have an opportunity. Were you thinking of that opportunity could be that they could grow up and be farmers themselves? I'm approaching my children um, differently than my family uh, approached me. You know, I'm not sure that uh, maybe maybe I'm going too far the other way uh, from the perspective of maybe you know the pendulum will swing one way and then swings the other. But um, I'm not uh, pushing my children to uh, work on the farm. Um, you know, my my. My uh, my oldest son, who is sixteen, I have two boys. I have a sixteen-year-old and eleven-year-old. He's, you know, from a very early age, he has indicated to us that he is not interested at all in uh, in being part of the farm. He's, you know, he's he's got some particular issues. <clears throat> he doesn't like being outside. He doesn't like noise. You know, there's just a lot of um, things with him that I don't think he's um, interested. But you know, I I don't. Uh, I'm not going to um, rule it out, but with my youngest, uh, with my 11 year old boy, I think it's possible he may be interested in it. But the way the way, uh, but I'm encouraging him to, you know, enjoy his childhood, learn learn responsibility, and you know, by doing chores and and participating in sports and doing the things that normal kids do. And um, if you know, and I'm hoping to guide him towards, you know, business school or ag business school. You know, he, he does 4-H and he raises animals and he's, he's in it that way. And I, and I think that, you know, when that kid, when that kid in, you know, 15 years from now uh, decides he's going to farm, farming is going to look way different than it does right now. Right. I mean, farming is going to look, I, I think that if you want to be a farmer in the future, you should be studying robotics right now, right? I mean, if you, if you know, I mean, that's that's probably for sure uh, what it looks like. I think we're going to have, you know, AI, and we're going to have automation, and we're going to have, and uh, you know, and so I think either you need to be a really uh, highly um, uh, technical um, 
highly technically minded person where you can do, you know, some of this stuff yourself and participate in it. Or, uh, you know, you need to think more like an economist and try to, you know, be in the position to manage trends and, and figure out what you should be doing ahead of the cycles. Because, you know, I, I think that what we see in ag right now, particularly in this part of the valley, is that, you know, I, I've been I've been having conversations with a b- bunch of my friends about, you know, like, what should we be growing? You know, and, and there's very few things that you can grow in California right now and make any money at. Very few. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, almonds aren't making money. Walnuts aren't making money. Corn, you know, row crops, you know, uh, corn, wheat, you know, alfalfa, you know, the dairies aren't making much money. So you can't expect they're going to, um, you know, be able to pay for high value row crop. You know, it's just a, it's just the, the economic time is very peculiar. Right. So, you know, trying to, you know, I, th- I think I think that uh, in agriculture, you have to start training kids to be entrepreneurial um, and and consider, you know, like most people thinking about multiple streams of income. You know, how do you how do you uh, how do you take your farming operation and and view it as just one of many income streams? And I know that you know a lot of people in agriculture are diversified in what they do in ag, but I think we have to start looking at diversifying ourselves outside of ag. Uh, in addition, right? You need you need income streams that are not ag based. Um, and so, you know, I think for my, for my boys, uh, that's kind of the world that I'm trying to introduce them to is like, how do you make, how can they go out and find their own way of making income and then being able to participate with the farm as one of those streams, right? And they can learn how to farm when they get here. Boy, that is a challenging picture. It makes a lot of sense. And I was thinking back when you're talking about the labor issues that you had of people actually working in the barns and 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 milking and trying to that you know someday maybe robotics are going to do that. Uh, you know, it's it's harder to see it exactly how they work around the cows, but that but there's but something there. But I think it oh, there's lots of robot dairies. So yeah, the robot you know, dairy thing's pretty well figured out. Yeah, used to be when you talked about AI and dairy, you were talking about artificial insemination instead of intelligence. <laughs> And and that's and that's yeah. Well, changed. now we have AI AI working on AI, right? So what about no. what about these other farmers that are maybe your age have kids at a similar stage? Do you find others are starting to think through the same thing? I mean, they're getting through whatever it is. They're shifting, going into different commodities. They're just trying to keep it t- together. But how do you stay optimistic when? nothing's making money or nothing's making enough money uh i mean you you try to see through it to the fact that that maybe the cost of doing business will get will get more efficient and that'll come to the rescue or is this uh, simply supply and demand that we are able to uh, to grow too much commodities that don't match up with enough demand looking ahead a lot of farmers uh bring up these issues i mean it's challenging right now and no matter what commodity you're involved with it's tough to see any that are doing well enough you know is it an issue of just just supply and demand uh higher cost of doing business um technology's not coming fast enough when you look at all of this 
and you talk to other farmers that are seeing this too. What what do you see as the the best hope moving forward? I mean, what reason do we have to be somewhat optimistic over the next few years? I think we have plenty of reason to be optimistic. Um, you know, let's just let's just start from there. I, I think that you know we all recognize that the that agriculture ha, uh, goes through cycles. You know, I mean, we we've we've been riding the sort of the waves of of prosperity, you know, for the 20 years I've been in farming. I mean, I, I got used to the cycles in dairy, right? Because I mean, there was a very predictable, you know, three-year sort of uh, boom and bust cycle in dairy, right? You make money one year, you break even the next year, you lose money on the third year, and then you just repeat that cycle. So we, we kind of know what that looks like. And I think we're in a, a, a an era of uncertainty right now in all aspects of uh you know the, the economy i think that the that the that the planet is going through some post-covid sort of like um uh thinking about you know what is what does the world what is the world supposed to look like um and and so i, I think we're 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 um a lot of people are sitting on the sideline i think in terms of you know what what investment could be in in the world of ag but i i think that it, there there's always people that want to you know <clears throat> that want agriculture to succeed and i and i think we're just around the corner from that you know particularly like in almonds you know like I, i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty bullish that all the almond price <coughs> is going to recover and almonds are going to be a decent uh crop for you know some time we just have to we just have to get to that future um, you know, certainly the supply of almonds has been plummeting over the last couple of years. We hit this peak number and now we have, you know, uh, we don't have a lot of new almonds going in. We've got a lot of almonds going out. We've had a couple of years of iffy crops, you know, this current crop that's coming off that just came off. Um, you know, I haven't seen any like official data, but if you want to talk to my processors, they're they all you know inform me that you know their the crop is very light and and so you know uh but i i just think in general um you know we're in a cycle and it's always hard to look at the bright side when you're in a the down on the downside of a cycle you know but uh i feel like we're we're uh close to turning it around you know and 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 i just think that's uh you know, all the way around. I think things are going to, things are going to level out. <clears throat> well, I hope you're right. And I think that everybody's looking for those answers. And I, I really appreciate having this conversation with you today. And, and I, I guess one other thing I would, I would ask you if, uh, when you talk to other farmers, you know, what are they what are they telling you i mean we've had a conversation here that we've touched on a fair bit of philosophy and kind of projecting the future but when you talk to other farmers of, of what's happening both now and kind of looking to their own futures when they're trying to figure out whether their kids are going to stay in the business and they can keep the farms or not what do you hear i i see a lot of variation in that you know a lot, a lot of my close my closest friends um, have kids that are not interested in coming back to the farm. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, 
a lot of, you know, my generation, sort of the Gen X generation, uh, being the last <clears throat> uh, generation in some cases. And, and we're also, you know, the Gen X, like we're kind of that small generation. Like, you know, when, when, when I look around the Midwest, for example, as I've had a chance to go out and, and meet with farmers, there are like nobody, there's nobody in their 50s farming in the Midwest. You know, everybody in my generation left the farm in the 80s and never came back. And, you know, the vast majority and, and California is kind of unique, I think, in that most of the dairy guys during that time um, were making money. And so you know, agriculture is going to flourish and it's going to survive uh, into the future. The, the question really is about who is going to own it and manage it and, and, and how that's going to look uh, compared to now where, you know, for, 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 for the most part, um, agriculture has been a family enterprise and we're seeing more and more where, you know, large vertically integrated corporations and, you know, hedge funds and outside sources of money are increasingly becoming the owners of land. And, uh, and those properties are being farmed by management companies. So, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, family farms can survive in California, I'll say moving forward in the face of, you know, increasing regulation and cost of, and, and of labor and supply and what's going on with our water situation, whether or not, and, and in addition to that, you know, as these families grow, um, you know, dividing the, the, the farm up, you know, between family members becomes increasingly more, you know, difficult to survive. Right. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, I, I, I always try to advocate and try to support and promote the possibility of keeping families farming. Um, but I'm, but I've become very strongly of the opinion that if families want to continue farming, they have to start learning how to do something other than farm as well or be prepared to make the, the transition out because it's, um, you know, it's not, um, it's not a set it and forget it, uh, way of life anymore. Uh, I think for us here in California, you know, I really appreciate that perspective and I know our listeners appreciate it. And I want to thank you for taking this time to have this chat on farm to table talk. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and tell my story, and I, uh, I look forward to maybe coming back again sometime. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 